Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Mark Groves podcast. I am so excited to be chatting with you this week about a subject that we don't often correlate to the influence it may have on our relationship. You know, we might in a small way think about the influence it might have on the physical and mental health of the person taking the product, but we don't necessarily correlate it to the other influences it may have relationally, and that is the birth control pill. I've been for a long time fascinated about hormones in general, but how a product like the birth control pill and how it works, how how it can't just be that it you know you just get this benefit where you don't you know you you're you're no longer as concerned about having a baby there has to be to me nothing is free there's always something that is the cost of that that's because human systems are perfect in that sorry systems on the planet are perfect you cannot alter one part of a system without altering something else I wanted to have this conversation because one, I'm a man and I can't have this conversation on my own, let's be honest. I needed someone who had an in-depth knowledge about it, had been experienced, had had experience with it and all the different areas of research to look at this story around the birth control pill. And we go into so much depth on the subject, which I'm so excited for you to hear about because I've long been so curious about this subject and its effect on fertility once uh, the woman comes off of it and how does it affect mental health and all those things. So I'm really, really pumped that I get to share this interview with you this week with Holly Grigspall, and she wrote the book called Sweetening the Pill. Before we get started with the episode, I wanted to have a, you know make an ask of you if you could go to wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to this and you know share it with your friends and uh, also give it a five star review and a written review that would be so incredibly helpful to get it into more people's ears. I can't wait for you to hear this episode and also I want to recognize that this is maybe a touchy subject and so. I want you to know that I did my best to navigate this with grace. 
being that I'm a, a straight male and recognizing that birth control is a subject, uh, hasn't necessarily been fair that it's only ever been placed in the hands of women from a medical perspective. And so it is with grace and humility that I have this conversation. And without further ado, here it is. I'm so excited to speak with you. I'm so grateful that I get what is the only resource that we can never get back, which is your time. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm really grateful. Well, this subject, the birth control pill, I mean, uh, as a male, a heterosexual male, it's only real introduction in my very uh, egocentric younger male world was uh, a preventative way for me not have to wear a condom. Really, I mean, at the end of the day, it was like, so I don't have to worry about having a baby. Yeah. But I also, as a qualifier, (laughs) I used to be a pharmaceutical rep. Oh, that's interesting. Right. You're like, ooh, okay. But in Canada. Uh, In Canada, and I sold everything under the sun. I worked in hospitals. I did specialty. And I never did birth control pills. I never represented those, but I had lots of friends who did. And it wasn't actually until my own relational stuff that I started to dive into more relational psychology and what makes relationships work. And I was drawn to this research about the birth control pill that fascinated me so much that it made me go down so many wormholes, rabbit holes, wormholes, whatever. I went down a hole <laughs> yeah. and it, and it brought me to this place where I was like, whoa, birth control pill. I mean, I have so many opinions on it and thoughts on it about how it affects mate selection, mm-hmm. infertility and all these things. So I wanted it as a straight male <laughs> talking about the birth control pill sometimes doesn't land quite as magically. And I am fully conscious of that because in, in and of itself, the construct of the birth control pill is quite male privileged in, in so many ways. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if you could just share with people what you do and what you're about, I'm so excited to dive into your mind and your heart. Yeah, absolutely. And it's nice to be asked onto a male heterosexual-led podcast. <laughs> it's, I, mean, I am not often, which is funny. It's a rare. I don't know if it's because cause I have colleagues and friends who do similar work, and I've always wondered if it's because I've kind of angled myself more toward the kind of feminist political end of the conversation, um, and that is not as you know, maybe as a sort of attractive as the uh, more kind of straightforward wellness element Mm. of the conversation. But, you know, I I don't know if um, Dave Asprey wants to talk about the patriarchy, basically. (laughs) Right, right. As where I'm like, shit, I got to eat a lot of humble pie in my (laughs) life. And, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, that's ultimately is this level of, uh, This might sound kind of contrived, but in the sense that uh, having the privilege of being a straight white male and then having a platform that can be derived from many constructs and confounding factors, but to then use that to elevate voices as I sort of disempower myself, which I I don't mean about power, but I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does, of course. No, no, I appreciate it. And I saw you talk at Mercado Sagrado and I 
was really impressed. So it was so cool when I got the email. Oh, full circle, right? Yeah, yeah. Had I known you're in the audience, (laughs) gosh, I would have gone into a long... That's the thing is I have so many thoughts and feelings on this subject, but I also have never had to take the birth control pill. Right. Um, (laughs) So it feels a bit like I'm so passionate about the subject and about, you know, much like I'm passionate about the subject of circumcision, at least with the subject of circumcision, I can <laughs> wield a wand, but that sounds kind of like a pun. But you know what I mean? Yeah, it does. Yeah, I do know what you mean. I know. But I think the the, the thing is, is when I first started doing this uh, work, like it was men who were the most interested in talking about it because they had seen it happen to someone that they loved a lot of the time and they had been the first person to come up against the side effects and the fallout from that and uh you know they were you know the the people who wanted to talk about it and to be honest I've never had any kind of negative pushback from men uh, talking about this and you know in the kind of you know we want to not use condoms or you know that sort of fashion it's always been from women so <laughs> you know I don't, do you think that I, don't I why do I think that is I think yeah. well, oh god that's a big that's a big conversation I think women like on a psychological relational level it's defensiveness because mm. if you've made a decision for yourself you know and you feel you've made it with agency and independence that ends up being something that could have potentially perhaps even unknowingly to you uh, caused negative side effects caused long-term problems caused relationships to end you know caused your mental health uh, effects that have maybe affected others then you are kind of defensive of that choice Um, yeah that that makes a lot of sense it's a pandora's box of things whereas i think men are more you know they don't take it so they're like they're kind of like oh yeah like that that totally makes sense that it would change your personality like why wouldn't it it's hormones um but women are very indoctrinated into assuming its benefit for them especially if we've taken it yeah that makes a lot of sense because i I noticed the same response to the subject of circumcision and i don't mean to parallel them because they're obviously different but Mm. um because people were educated that their child required it or they're making an edge. They were doing the best they could with what they had at the time. And, and, and that's where that level of um, compassion and grace for self as we learn more, but now that we learn more, let's change our behaviors. Yes. Yes. So let's learn more. I'm so excited to learn more. (laughs) Yeah. So where did your journey begin in this? I mean, your book, Sweetening the Pill, Mm-hmm. Or how we got hooked on a hormonal birth control. I mean, the name of the book, I mean, says a lot. And and how did you come about? Like, it's obviously a very passionate subject for you. So, yeah, if you could please share. Are you open to sharing that? Yeah, of course. So, essentially, it just came out of my own experience. I used the pill for 10 years. The second to last brand of pill that I used was a very popular one um, that was pushed very heavily in the US through advertising and pharmaceutical reps and doctors. It was called Yasmin. Uh, Oh yeah, I remember that. They had ads at movie theaters, I think, in Canada even. 
that's the thing. Yeah, they they had their tentacles out everywhere. And I was in England at the time <laughs> and they were, yes, and they were able to even get into women's magazines in the UK, you know, where we don't do the direct to consumer advertising for pharmaceuticals. So um, it was really, you know, that experience of taking a pill that was very popular. Everybody I knew was on it. It was sold as this kind of magic uh, remedy to all the side effects of the previous pills, but also with the added benefits of things like making you have great skin, helping you lose mm. Weight, avoiding PMS and mood swings. They really like uh, push the boundaries of what was legal even to say about what a contraceptive pill could do. And oh. I had terrible side effects on that. And they occurred insidiously in, over a period of about two and a half years, which were uh, predominantly mental health side effects, but also some physical side effects. You know, everything really coming under the banner of subclinical depression, anxiety, you know, uh, disinterest in doing things I otherwise enjoyed, social anxiety, you know, different panic attacks, depression, different things coming up from that. And that could have came on over that period of time. I really didn't make the connection until the final few months of my time on it. Um, so that experience was the kind of catalyst for my research. And I was a journalist, but I was a you know movie and culture journalist. I'm not women's health journalist, not science journalist. But I wanted to do the research out of curiosity as to like how was it possible that this pill could have caused um, me to have what I felt was such a change in my mental state and personality. And as I dug into that, you know, I got a few pieces published in magazines, and and but I had a lot of research, and I put that into a blog. This was two thousand and nine. Blogs were the thing to do, and <laughs> yeah. not podcasts, but blogs. And so um, I made the blog kind of like a document of my transition off the pill after ten years, and what that looked like, and what that felt like, um, and wow. so my own sort of autobiographical you know, memoir of going off the pill um, intersected there with my research into its history, you know, the feminist history of the pill, you know, the uh, the health issues, the side effects, the root causes of that, and how we'd got to a place where some 80% of women use the pill at some point in their lifetime. So, wow. you know, as I wanted to look at it from an individual level and also look at it from like a population level. What if it changed me? in the way that it did so significantly, how has it changed women and how is it like fed into our story as a group of people over time? Um, and the, that blog inevitably came a book proposal and ev inevitably came a book and um, then a documentary, which is coming out this year. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yes. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. Who knew the journey of um, what is seemingly a chemically induced mental uh, health experience uh, that would take you to this space of, of being able to help other people understand why, you know, that, that sense of there's no reason I should feel this way. Why do I feel this way? And then being sold the idea that the drug in and of itself, oh, that wouldn't be from that. You know, so it's almost like the perpetual message that we often give to anyone who's emotional, but I, I think especially women is uh, you're too much. It's you're erratic. You're, you know, that, that idea that it, it couldn't possibly be something outside of you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that's the thing is that, you know, for many women, it's really the last place they look. Um, and my aim with my work was always to make it move up a bit. You know, yes, of course, you might be anxious and depressed for other reasons, mm -hmm. um, but 
perhaps this is a reason why and that you could look to that, you know, the second and third point rather than maybe never, maybe not until you finally come off because you want to get pregnant, Mm -hmm. um, which is where women are at um, a lot of the time. And, you know, they don't realize. um, And the the anecdote I tell in the first few paragraphs of my book is that my doctor herself said, you know, that she had been on the pill for several decades and not realized until she'd come off that she was not the sort of prone to depression, uh, sort of despondence, you know, introverted person that she thought she was you know she was actually much different but you know that that's something that you often don't discover until it's too late and and that's where you've been your experience for much of your life which was really upsetting to me at the time and still is now and um you know that's that's why I do what I do I want women who will find it to be a positive transition to have the opportunity to experience that at the soonest point yeah I think of that like that poor woman who thinks that her personality trait, she's actually molded it into this is just who I am rather than there's something we can do about it. And I mean, to move it up your list, I, I think it, it, I was trying to think, okay, well, if I was a young woman who's on the birth control pill and I was listening to this right now, um, I think the only real reason that I wouldn't want to just come off it to see if I'm the same with or without it would be my fear of the man's response to my desire to come off it that, oh, God, like he might have to use a condom. Oh, he might like the level of privilege and reactivity that us as men can often have and the women taking responsibility for those feelings rather than responsibility for their health. Yeah, and that was certainly how I felt. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that the pill and our relationships, there are so many points of pressure and so many ways that it impacts it that we may be aware of and we are not aware of. And what you're talking about is one that often I think many women are aware of, which is this navigating coming off. And um, I actually do workshops for women who want to come off the pill. And that ranges from women who've taken it for six months to women who've been on it for 30 years. Um, And it always comes up and it's actually a part of that workshop, the idea of the relationship obstacle to going off to your wellness, which is that often for women, that's the time when either your partner steps up and supports you and wants your wellness and wants you to be feel better, wants trusts you to make the decision for yourself um, and has is able to have that open conversation about avoiding pregnancy and, you know, short-term and long-term goals in that way. Or they're not. <laughs> and yeah, it, it reveals, that's a red flag. Yes, it reveals a lot of red flags um, and in terms of just whether they'll support you, um, whether they – you know, have are on the same page as you um, in terms of what you want um, and how they feel about you and whether they prioritize, you know, your health. Uh, but also, you know, as you're navigating that and a lot of women I work with are moving into, you you know, tracking their fertility and, and um, as an al- alternative to the pill and hormonal birth mm-hmm. control. And that, again, brings up lots of conversations because you have to navigate around, okay, so I have a fertile window and during that fertile window we'll abstain from, you know, penis and vagina sex but there are other things we can do how can we have that conversation and again that brings up a lot too which is really interesting so yeah the whole that's something I think women are very aware of and it does definitely keep them on hormonal birth control longer than they perhaps would feel comfortable I think there's other things that do too like Mm -hmm. their doctor 
perhaps saying, yeah. oh, no, it probably isn't the pill. Like you said, it's probably all in your head. Um, you know, it's probably stress at work. It's probably your diet. Um, so there's definitely other factors, but that definitely is one of the things that comes up. It's interesting to think that a physician in that position, you know, you know often wanting to make it about other things. And I wonder if there's a, diff, a gap. I don't know if you've seen that in your research. Uh, whether it's a male or female doctor and their response to that that inquiry. Yeah, you know, I don't think it really makes a difference. A lot of women are very protective, especially older women of, uh, you know, who grew up in generations before, you know, our mothers, I'm in my 30s, um, you know, that feel very protective of the pill as a tool for liberation, as synonymous with empowerment, as um, a, you mm-hmm. know, the, as a responsible choice, as the way that you have control as a woman over when you choose to do things in your life. Um, and they grew up with just as little, if not less, education around the body, uh, around alternatives, or and also have been steeped in perhaps an even more um, traditional view of the male-female relationship and who takes responsibility and who doesn't, um, and perhaps never have had those conversations. I actually think like younger generations, women younger than me, uh, are in a position better sometimes to advocate and negotiate around those conversations than my generation or older generations. So no, I actually don't think it necessarily goes that way. I think men have a certain tone to it that's slightly different, um, which tends to tends to be more sort of the research doesn't show, you know, that this is this is present. Uh, and therefore, you know, it's not because they don't have firsthand experience and they can't imagine having firsthand experience perhaps of changing your entire hormonal makeup um, in that way over decades. Uh, But women definitely have a very like a social cultural bias, I think, toward continuing to keep women enthusiastic about the pill. I never really thought of it about, um, although it makes absolutely logical sense, that it be about um, also a message of feminism. Like we get to choose now. We can have more uh, sex that's empowering for us. We get to where it's not a, a risk as much for us. Do you think that was part of the marketing plan of the pharmaceutical companies or uh, in general? Yes. And I think it's called the Virginia Slims marketing model, right? Where you oh, think your the, product, yeah, the cigarettes. From the um, the women who, what is that group of women uh, called from the, it's from the 1930s, right? Where they said, uh, torches of freedom. Is that from that? Yes. Cigarettes? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Brilliant um, marketing. Brilliant. Uh, yeah. You know? I think it's definitely marketing. It's also, you know, the the pill was taken up very enthusiastically when it was released in the 60s because women didn't have the awareness of other options. They also had, you know, very traditional dynamics or I don't even want to say traditional, but retrograde dynamics in their relationships um, and didn't have a lot of power and were having more children than they wanted to um, and were confined to the home in terms of work. Um, And so the pill was this catalyst to move women into the workplace alongside men. Um, My book basically Mm. asks whether you know, the pill was a product of the patriarchy, the product of capitalism, and therefore why do we see it as adverse to those models rather than uh, an 
a tool of it, right? That's kind of what I'm asking. I'm like, why have we set the pill up to be this sort of liberational revolutionary tool rather than what it is, which is a product of a system that saw it as useful, right? Wow. And and that's very difficult in the US to have that conversation at times because of the still now conversations around access. So it's very easy to perpetuate this notion of it being this revolutionary tool, uh, this feminist product, because, you know, we're we're prevented from accessing it by people who seem to be very anti-woman and very anti-feminist. And so that's perpetuated um, instead of like uh, us looking at it and thinking, like you just said, like we're talking about in the 60s, you know, oh, this is an opportunity for me to be sexually liberated and, you know, live in that time of sort of free love and the way that things were then. And there's a there's an expert on on um, you know the the pill in general, John, Dr. John Gillibald, and he's in the UK. And he wrote a book that looked through all the research on the pill and the different kinds of pills. And the in- introduction of which was actually kind of a really important point in when I was writing about this in my blog. The introduction was written by his wife, who's also a doctor, I believe. Mm. And she pointed out that you know what we we should ask like, did the pill liberate women sexually or did it liberate men? Huh. That's fascinating. Yeah. 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 Which that I'm sure that line of inquiry isn't as celebrated. You know, (laughs) (laughs) when I think of the, you know, because when we look at the divorce rate in relationships has um, gone down in higher socioeconomic statuses. And one of the reasons that is postulated for that is the birth control pill, because people aren't having babies they shouldn't have or aren't having them in one night stands or whatever it is, and then getting married because of traditional uh, views. And and so that has taken the strain away. So people who shouldn't be married are not married, essentially. Mm. And uh, so it's interesting to think about it from that perspective. Also that in the, uh, I like that you use the more retroactive uh, uh, forms of relational structure Mm. That, you know, there was that message sent uh, in the 40s, 50s, especially uh, that the woman should be ready for her man when he wants to have sex and she'll stay at home and she'll take care of everything. And it was her job to take care of her own fertility to ensure the man did, wasn't uh, faced with any form of struggle right, or any rejection. God forbid we experience that. Who knows what we'll do with that? <laughs> you know, so... It is. I've never really thought about it from all these different perspectives. That as a for as opposed to liberation, it's actually further imprisonment, um, and and that is brilliant marketing to hide something in a movement, not even knowing that it's actually part of the uh, grip upon you know, uh, you know. Because I think when a woman goes on the pill, essentially it makes the body believe it's pregnant, right? Actually, it puts you in menopause. That's, a, oh, wow. that's one of the myths I talk about a lot. It, it okay, well, you in... destroy my myth. I want to hear this. <laughs> actually, puts women in artificial menopause. So you have a very low level of hormones from what you would normally. Pregnancy is much more, you know, high level of hormones up and down, a lot of dips and things. But the pill isn't uh, inducing that. It's, it's, um, it's replacing your own hormone output, sex hormone output, with an artificial stream that's like a flatlining effect, which is basically similar to menopause. Well, why wouldn't we believe that? Because, you know, like if men take steroids, mm. they often become more aggressive. Their body goes out of balance, you know, because whenever you put any hormone in the body, something that the, the body is brilliant, it doesn't need assistance in, you know, doing these things. And so when it it does take any hormone, 
it only makes logical sense that you can't, I mean, nothing is free. You know, you can't alter a system without the system finding balance or expression in some other way. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things I was really keen to bring up in this podcast, because it's great to sort of focus mm-hmm. on that relationship side of things, is that, you know, when what we don't talk, we don't talk about the fact there's steroids, no, or that there's endocrine, it's an endocrine disruptor, you know, um, that's how it's actually supposed to work is to disrupt the endocrine system and it's it's what works on the brain it's not a magical pill that finds your uterus and tinkers around with it and fixes things you know it's, it's not yeah, what, yeah. that doesn't what is very actually very crude medicine um, it, it really is it's not sophisticated you know it was, it's been around for a really long time but what it what it does is as you said it has a whole body effect and as you said it changes it, you know if you're on steroids as a man you're on on testosterone artificial testosterone it's going to change uh, your emotions your personality your outlook and it basically hormones are how we interact with the world around us so one of the major things it's doing is it's going to change the external hormones that you put out on your pheromones um, yeah. and change um, you know also from that onwards you know in many ways stopping ovulation in women just completely changes how we relate to each other so while there's you know the whole level of that you will maybe experience you know and there's good research studies since my book came out that validated what I was putting forward there that you could experience depression anxiety uh, increased suicide risk things like that that are going on within yourself it's also about how we relate to each other if we don't think about that part that um the effect on how we ch- you know mate selection things like that i was i was initially led down the rabbit hole because i was reading uh deeper inquiries into the white t-shirt study mm. um right where they took uh shirts had men wear these white shirts not wear deodorant for, i think for like a couple of days and then they put them in bags and then they had groups of women smell the bags it's a pretty famous study And women then said, like, which shirts did you like? The smell of which ones did you not? And from my understanding, the, you know, the women who preferred certain shirts uh, were, would say things like, oh, he smells like my ex-boyfriend. Like there was like a correlation to something Mm. that was a consistent sort of thing. And when I remember they were looking at an immune system marker and the women on the who were not on birth control picked men whose immune systems were dissimilar to theirs. And so that, you know, of course, in some level of evolution is the thought that it would broaden the immunity of the offspring. Mm -hmm. But the women who are on the birth control pill sort of picked at random. There was no consistency to their selection. And I know that there was a further extrapolation of that thinking like, well, women on the birth control pill maybe it's it's theorized that you would want to be around kin when your body is in that sort of hormonal state. And so you're not attracted to kin. So it's like a really interesting that it might affect our mate selection. Did you go down that path too? Yeah. So I did a little, and I've always been, I, it's, when I first started doing this, I was kind of reluctant to go down that. What's interesting is that there are so many research studies on this and that's yeah. partly because it's about men. <laughs> it's not about women. And I'm certain. Oh, shit. Yeah. yeah. That's why I read that one. Damn. Yeah. And also okay. they're good headlines. They get funding. They get a big splash. They get media interviews. So, you know, science is about self-promotion as much as anything else. And 
so that's you know yeah that there's a lot of studies on this and you're right you said exactly the, the how it how it is which is, is that the the concept is it's about biological compatibility um and i always you know say well we you know we we are animals and we do have pheromones and we do respond to pheromones um and biological compatibility issues exist in partner choice and talking about genetic diversity over similarity and you know the characteristics that they discuss and that women are looking for when they're on the pill versus to not on the pill um but we also have reason right and we also have you know we have free choice we have free choice and we're able also to ascertain you know like i one of the things i always said which you know this is one of the probably the top things i'm asked about in terms of like do you think I broke up with my boyfriend because I went off the pill? <laughs> and or, and women are so fascinated by it, which again, I think is, if I'm being like true to myself, I think is because we are so focused on men a lot of the time. Mm, like um, how this affect my choice of him rather than yes. how did this affect my mental health? How did this yes. affect all yeah. these other, my body, my health? Yes. It's like, why is this why I haven't got married yet? Is this why I wasn't with the right person? Is this why I got divorced? Which, you know, it's fair enough to ask that. There are a lot of reasons to ask that, you know, in terms of not only how women choose partners, but also how men respond to women who ovulate versus women who don't. Oh, interesting. Like, uh, I know it's a sensitive line, right? Because, of Mm. course, we are talking about our lives. We're talking about what we exchange time for. And like, if we think, well, if I was on the pill and that made me choose that person and I ended up with them or, or the partner, same thought. Uh, and it was a waste of time when I got off it, I didn't like them anymore. Like these things are scary subjects to go down. So anyone who's listening, who's like, fuck, I, I hear you. And I have so much compassion and empathy because, but we have to ask these questions. Yeah. And you see that happen in real time when you bring this up. I mean, when you start making the connections and realizing that it isn't this magic pill, it has this whole body effect. It's changing your pheromones. It's changing your sense of smell. Um, it's changing how you behave to a degree. Um, you know, that we're, we're talking about other studies that have shown that men have a preference for women when they're ovulating because we they do pick up. We think that we don't like animals. We think that we don't have uh, obvious ovulatory uh, cycles or obvious fertile windows, but we do. We we have mm-hmm. give you know tells that give uh, that we give out that we are in the fertile window each cycle, um, which does appear to have an effect on men who are interacting with us. And then you know the idea that women going off the pill report that they are less attracted to their partner, and it's very sort of physical feeling you know it's it's not necessarily always because you know the po- the possibility i've always put forward is that it's possibly because they aren't supportive of the woman going off the pill and that's mm, a red that flag. would make and, you not attracted to someone yes. right away because you're like i'm not safe to put my health first unbelievable exactly and i think that's very common and often not brought into the equation and i say that as somebody who is with the same person that i was with when i was on the pill and came off the pill and i am you know i've been with them for almost 15 years so you know i'm not the candidate to say <laughs> that i lost a relationship did you notice because, a shift um for better yeah for better for sure but, but partly because um he supported me in coming off and mm. was very supportive of me doing doing that, researching it, uh, writing about it, 
Um, and also because then you enter into a whole other world, which is the world of having your regular hormone cycle and ovulating and having a sex drive and having a physical desire, you know, that you, mm. you, you've previously divorced yourself somewhat from because as many women will be aware who are listening, that's one of the, the bitter ironies of the pill that makes it not sexually liberating is that you don't, um, want to have sex right uh because it has an incredible effect on libido sexual interest sexual thoughts enjoyment all across the 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 spectrum and so yeah when you come off you're into a whole different thing you know you have the hormonal shifts and changes you're not flatlining you're having that whole experience so you can you know not only are you not having this to deal with the side effects and the effects obviously that's going to have on your relationship but you're also accessing emotions and feelings and that you've not had before um wow that'd yeah. be such a plethora of like you get to discover a whole new version of yourself which also means you're going to have sadness for not being connected to that part of yourself for so long potentially mm. yeah i think so and it doesn't mm. mean that i think all women on the pill aren't having sex or aren't enjoying sex because i think women are kind of complex <laughs> in that way and that you know you may you have different reasons for for wanting and desiring and a lot of the research around it is interesting because it just really uniformly co uh, correlates how often women have sex with how much they desire it which unfortunately is not a good correlation that's not correlated no um and so we don't really talk about like oh that uh women are you know we talk about men and physicality and hormones and testosterone and sex drive a lot right but mm -hmm. with women we don't talk about ovulation and testosterone and sex drive and you know any of that stuff really because we assume for women it's an entirely intellectual pursuit <laughs> i think yeah <laughs> yeah which is really interesting um so when people say you know oh did it have a change like i always am like well yeah it's it's a positive change overall but you know you also right. have the shifts and over time so i have you know you have four phases of the hormonal cycle every cycle so you know some women find that the, uh, the first half of the cycle they're super outgoing and communicative and very interested in their partner and very attracted and very you know and then in the second half they're much more want to spend more time alone and are not really engaged in that part of their life so much and kind of go inward a bit more so but that's a whole that's a whole other thing <laughs> well I love that aspect of it because you know I'm I know with my former partner I would get notifications on my phone when she was changing in her different cycles parts of her cycle and I loved it it would be like oh she's in phase three she's feeling a little randy you know she likes <laughs> random acts of romance and I'd be like and then it was like phase four and I kind of would joke because phase four was uh the time of menstruation and one of the jokes we had between us was i was like in the week you have no nothing will make sense just love her <laughs> and and i there was sort of a, a beautiful part though to honor the cycles because not being female but uh, really being in awe of the feminine intuition and you know the the fact that the cycles that women experience is really connected to the circadian rhythm of the planet and the moons and, and the moon, the moons, I sound like an, I'm an, I'm a Scorpio and, and my moon is in Pisces. I have no idea. I made that up. But what is interesting to me is that the possibility that 
the birth control pill actually disconnects women from their intuition and the connection to the planet. And I mean, women are the portal to the planet. And that, I mean, there's so much existential stuff we could get into from that perspective, but in that, just that, that truth, because that is a truth, uh, there's a sadness to that, that like, we believe that that's the right way to, like, that's the best way to not get pregnant, you know, is to actually sever uh, that, that connection. Yeah. And, you know, in my book, I talk a little bit about you know, the eco-feminism and the concept of women being connected in that way to natural cycles of the world. And you know how there's some similarities between, you know, the use of overuse of pesticides, you know, the same company that pushes the overuse of pesticides that we know kill the bee population is the same company that, that creates the birth control pill and a lot of the hormonal birth control options that are available to mm, us. Shocking. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, there's definitely these there's parallels there and I'm always putting forward the idea that like you know we have two paths that we can choose and you know as you said we can talk about this existentially we can choose the body and to return to the body and mm. and and nature or we can choose to divorce ourselves further from it and that's where we get into you know robots and uploading our consciousness to the internet and things like that and i think you know that we have two paths and it will be interesting whether we take the path that takes us you know the few of us that can to mars or you know whether we go in the opposite direction and reconnect with the earth but um for some of us it might not be a choice we don't know but i think it has so many it has some very individual and like it's very specific um, things you know that go on with the pill and then there's yet yeah, massive broad consequences um, absolutely to this conversation which is really about as you said intuition your relationship with the body and how we feel about females <laughs> well, it's making me think even further of like mm, quieting the female voice the female opinion the female's connectivity to themselves and and, and just how how the more i hear and, and I'm in awe of women stepping into the power, the more I just want to get out of the way because I feel like in a lot of ways that's what's saving our planet now. That's is that rise. That's a, because, yeah, I mean, you think Mother Earth, Mother. I mean, there's so many connects, connections to the feminine. And um, we are more, more whole, more complete when everyone is connected fully more to themselves in their natural state, I think, at least. I mean, I don't yeah. even think that's an irrational thought that's that's a very rational i don't even need that backed by science that is backed by the way the freaking planet works yeah absolutely and i think you know it's interesting you were saying how you were getting these texts from your um partner about the cycle and a lot of men are keyed into that stuff especially the idea of being warned around the luteal phase or the premenstrual phase or you know, like some people see that as like the radical honest face. <laughs> the radical like, honest face. Ra you don't need a text honest. to warn you about that one. You'll, <laughs> you'll get no. old real quick. Yes. And, but, you know, men have cycles too. And like when women are often not aware of that, we assume because we've been indoctrinated to understand it this way, that women are ever changeable and, and shifting and men are con constant and steady, right? And it's not true. And I talk no. about this in my book, you know, the way that we've arranged society around, you know, the the certain idea of time and 
concept of how we arrange our working life, even like having um, meetings super early in the morning or telling everybody that's when they need to work out or, you know, there's all these different ways we've arranged around that time and not around the the monthly cycle or the, the four-phase cycle time um, or the idea of, you know, being consistently pr- productive and consistent in general, emotionally and otherwise. Um, it's not really about female and male, it's about human and (laughs) anti-human you know that's the Mm. thing it's it's just a system that doesn't support human it's just not 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 necessarily just a system that doesn't support women because men have the 24-hour cycle as, as well as other cycles that go on connected to nature and the 24-hour cycle is through testosterone so 3 or 4 a.m you know testosterone is rising and then peaks in the morning and then goes down slowly throughout the day to the evening <laughs> and you know we're, we that's how you're geared in a different way you know that the evening is a different time for you than the morning in a way that isn't just related to the light you know so in your work and you're uncovering all of this, what are some of the sort of most important messages that you think everyone must come away with just understanding or being more? Because um, what I really love about the way you speak is that you're not about like, this is the way it is. You're saying, be curious, just be more curious about the possibilities that these all, all these things might be true for you. And maybe they aren't. they aren't. So what are some of the things that that you feel like everyone must begin to ask or or um, begin to reclaim. Well, I think I'm always a big a big advocate of body literacy, and a lot of the work I've done since the book came out has been around the importance of just having an informed place to make from which to make decisions. And I'm certainly never advocated for there to be a less options. You know, I do. Mm-hmm. I think all these things should be you know, all these options should be freely available and free. (laughs) And uh, they're not right now in some parts of the world. And, um, you know, I just happen to also think that we should have a whole menu of non-hormonal options. But body literacy is really where it starts, because if you understand how your body works, and I think this should be information for both, you know, young women and young men from high school onwards, if you can understand you know, positively about the period, for example, from the beginning, like that it's not this sort of cursed event that happens at random just because women deserve pain and punishment since biblical times, <laughs> which is, you know, yeah, still a lot of where we culturally, how we culturally kind of understand it, but that it's part of a whole cycle and it's kind of amazing and there's ovulation and you only have six days per cycle that you can actually conceive. Um, and all this information is body literacy and understanding your, you know, tracking your basal body temperature, tracking your cervical fluid changes. But it's been very obviously very fearful of those in power to give that to young women and and young men um, because they think that it will be, you know, give them too much (laughs) um, agency and and too much possibility for advocating for what they need. And instead, you know, we decide that it's best not to have them not have the information to make the decision. Um, And, Mm. you know, I think that... uh, so much in our society would change in terms of for women and also in within our relationships if we were able to do that very early on um, and talk about that very early on. Um, and I just think it would give women a very different concept of their biology and their bodies and make them feel more confident. And, you know, we see that, you know, self 
uh, steam really plummets for young women after they get their first period. Um, and uh, we know that young women struggle to advocate um, within relationships for what they need and, you know, whether that's to use a condom or or um, that they don't want to take the pill or whatever it is, then the, all these things can shift and change. And I truly believe that. And I, I truly believe that, you know, if we had some level of body literacy and fertility awareness as part of our relationships, that we would have such a different conversation within them around you know, how we have sex, how we decide whether we want children or not, um, you know, what's important to us, um, you know, all kinds of things. Well, it makes me like think, okay, well, if we're going to get to birth control education, it's like we should have some relational education, (laughs) you know, uh, (laughs) how to manage conflict, how to have a hard conversation, how to relate. And, you know, we live in a world that is so influenced by religious dogma that sex is a subject that is so terrifying uh, for adults and schools and religions that even the subject, like the idea, like I've certainly been in relationship with a woman who has felt that their period was dirty or a Mm. previous partner was like, and I'm like, bring it on. What a great, we should celebrate. This is awesome. You know, it's a, because I was never taught that, you know, and it's a interesting that we're so afraid of just getting to know and get more education that would allow us to make better decisions. And I think what you pointed to is uh, about giving people the information and allowing them to choose. I find that our corporations, our governments, and our, even in, within the context of certain research and science, that we don't share the information. We make the decision for people and don't give them all the info because we're afraid they won't be able to handle it. Yes. Or they might say fucking no. Like, God forbid they say no because they don't want to lose their connection to their intuition or self or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. If they say no or we don't trust them to know what's right for them, which women struggle with through medical system all the time, whether it's giving birth or trying to get pregnant or, you know, um, we sort of just shuffle along um, through, you know, the spans of our fertile years without much education for, you know, and that just feeds into to so much in terms of money making and all sorts of things. But yeah, I really think if we got down to it, I think of it has, you know, I, I used to teach an online class about sort of the idea of how, you know, you can't really allow, we won't ever really be able to in the future have all the options open to us without incorporating feminism. But there's so much potential in body literacy and sort of re-examining birth control and that journey from birth control to body literacy that allows us to sort of bring in a feminist scope to our personal relationships, which has a benefit on everybody in the end. Um, so yeah, I think that's really what I always try and get for the takeaway for um, anyone is that, you know, it's not about, as you said, you know, it's just about, it's about informed choice and, and making a decision. And if you learn body literacy in high school and then you decide at this time in my life, an IUD is the right choice. And that's great. Well, I think of the, what you said about this more like feminist infused, infused education. And, and as, uh, someone who's mindful of how words, uh, cause I'm sure as soon as we say the word feminist, mm. people go, oh, well then it's a few. And I'm like, no, how about, uh, like we get reactive to that because we think it's extreme, but it's not. It's how about when it comes to fertility, 
we take a female centric look at it. I mean, God forbid, you know, and that's, it, it saddens me that, that we haven't, but, but hopefully through these conversations that, that we are, I mean, at least as men for sure, that we are more mindful of the health implications of our partners just to avoid the labor of having to pinch and roll a condom on, you know, yeah. and, and reduce our sensitivity by 5%, like get over yourself. Yeah, and I think younger men are realizing that, you know, the weight of pregnancy prevention responsibility is and has long been on women. And, you know, we've justified that, um, you know, that women get do get pregnant and men don't. So, you know, we justify that around it and that women have held on to having that, um, almost having that control because we don't know, you know, the the society in which we share that responsibility might look quite different um, and it wouldn't perhaps work with the current system the way it's set up. But yeah, I mean, the point is, is that women, as I said, can only get actually conceive on six days per cycle. Um, and that was the real um, moment of um, enlightenment for me that you, you're taking something every day or using some quite aggressive d- device or medication in order to circumvent six days of your cycle and then if you're pregnant you're pregnant for nine months whereas men are fertile all the time from uh, into their old age and uh, for many more years than women and could impregnate multiple women a day <laughs> mm, yes. and yet and yet and we have, are, i'm sure yes and have and yet we're treated as women as like the ticking time bomb of fertility the the danger zone you know the yeah the uh, thing that you have to sort Sort of manage and control and work around um and we do so much that to our detriment to make sure that we don't have babies when we don't want to um and you know that i think that that is shifting i really do i think people are realizing like that is fundamentally not fair and uh that that's what feminism is about really <laughs> things that are fundamentally yeah. not fair on to, and put more of a burden on on women and i think a lot of younger men definitely especially are really like aware of that now and really getting to think well you know how can this be worked around and i think the conversation around like the potential of the male birth control pill the male birth control injection always brings this up um you know that you what do men want that um do women want men to be using that uh, what options are there available to men now that they're not using? You know, that's always an interesting way that sort of puts a magnifying glass on all of that. Well, I think as men, you know, if I had to take a male birth control pill, no, hell no. Because I think about like it's going to alter some chemistry within me. And I'm not into altering the chemistry of my body that is naturally wise. You know that. So to expect a woman to do that is preposterous, you know, but I... <laughs> As a younger male who didn't like the labor of a condom in a relationship, as I said at the very beginning of this, I fully own that anything I might be saying, if an ex-girlfriend from my younger 20s is listening, is like, <laughs> he is such a hypocrite. Yes, I'd rather be a hypocrite and, and, and be someone who has grown than stay the same, you know, and I was interested by what you said, the education on checking what phase you're in and the temperature right? That occurs. Um, and I was thinking, do you think one of the, or actually maybe, can you explain what that would look like for people? And then I just had a question about, about what maybe some of the resistance to that is. Oh, uh, fertility awareness. Yeah. What it look like, um, well, when I was 
first writing about this, you know, what it really looked like was, uh, you know, taking your basal body temperature with a basal body thermometer and uh, tracking it so that you could see when you have this slight shift in temperature after you ovulate. And that's how you confirm that you've ovulated. And then the egg only lives 24 hours. So after that point, you are then infertile. You cannot get pregnant. It's physically impossible. Um, So if you're in a long-term relationship, that's great information if you don't want to use condoms all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which, you know, some women don't either. Also, just great to have that level of confidence knowing that you can literally not get pregnant. That's off the table. Um, And then also it was tracking your cervical fluid um, and the changes therein. So you have fertile cervical fluid is absolutely essential for sperm to reach the egg and for you to get conceive. Um, And that was all pretty much done, you know, paper charting and very manual at the time. But, you know, this is my book came out some time ago and things have changed significantly now. And what they call the femtech for fertility industry is just massive billion dollar, you know, potential to this industry. We're basically taking that technology and that understanding and making it very, very simple and very, very accurate and very easy. um, And taking the burden again off women, thankfully, to have to do that for themselves um, and understand what they're looking for and do a little bit of math and and get that or be taught that. And, you know, the time it was this book book taking charge of your fertility and still, you know, considered a real classic of the fertility awareness genre. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, now, you know, women are using fertility trackers, fertility apps and devices to just simplify that process and so basically what it comes down to is you're given a window in which you know that you are fertile and could conceive which includes the lifespan of the egg and the lifespan of sperm which is five days maximum and then outside of that window you know you cannot um and so yeah and so most people choose to do that in a relationship they do that and they don't either abstain from what I call like PIV sex, I never found a more elegant way of saying it, um, during the fertile window, um, or they choose to use condoms during the fertile window or pull-out method during the fertile window, or depending on where they are on the desperately don't want to, don't really care spectrum of pregnancy, right? <laughs> I like so that that's... spectrum. I've never heard of that one. but uh, <laughs> that's how it, I think it's the spectrum and it changes sometimes. It really is so true. We don't acknowledge it. You know, it doesn't always, it's not static. Um, and so, yeah, it's interesting that that's what it looks like. So in day-to-day life, it would look like you taking your temperature uh, with a device or you using an app um, that you're not a period tracker app. Just so to be clear about that, you have to be te- to track be you have to be tracking a fertility sign every day to effectively your temperature track fertility. Yes, your always cervical fluid or both. How do you track cervical fluid? It's like how it. It, it's uh, the feel, the look, the texture. So basically, you're just looking for uh, fertile cervical fluid, which is a certain consistency for sperm to survive. So you could do um, this as a couple. That'd be kind of yes. a party. You'd be like, let me check your cervical fluid. Yes. And I think that that's, that's hot been- now. That could be sexy now. <laughs> That's always been the goal, I think, of talking about this is like it shouldn't be for me. It'd be just about the woman going away into a corner and like figuring it out, sketching it out, you know, and then feeling like a huge perhaps feeling a lot of anxiety around being responsible for making that decision as are we fertile today or are we not fertile today? And instead, yeah, you can that's a lot of women I know do do that and they make it more of a 
balance between them and their partner in terms of when they, you know, remembering to take their temperature when they first wake up in the morning, um, the conversations they have around it. And in the end, you're always going to have more conversations because you're going to have to talk about, I'm in my fertile window and that means we're going to do this or not do this. So it's also brings up a lot of consent stuff too, which is interesting. Yeah. and, And our ability to stand in our boundaries, you know, that really invites um, because as you said earlier, a woman standing in the, her values, what she needs, what she needs to protect her health. We often are afraid. I say we, like I'm a female, uh, people are often, women are often afraid and men can be too. And people in general to stand in our own health and our own standards, because we're afraid of the response we might receive. And, uh, you know, we are afraid that if we request that thing and they don't like it, then we didn't request it right or we shouldn't request it, not seeing that their inability to comply or be kind or be generous in that conversation is actually a red flag. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I think it makes it, you know, it forces a lot of conversations. I feel, I do, really do feel like the pill and hormonal birth control allows us to shelf a lot of actual communication and intimacy. Um, we just put it to one side. Okay, that's taken care of. Um, we don't have to talk about whether we want children or not, or whether you prefer one kind of sex or another kind of sex, or whether you feel like you want to have sex or, you know, lots of different things we can just put to the side. Because as we said at the top of the podcast, like the pills, part of it is about like sexual availability, right? That you are Mm -hmm. available because you cannot get pregnant. And that's kind of the end of the conversation. Um, And that's, you know, whereas if you take that out of the equation, there's so much more there that you have to talk about because otherwise it doesn't work. I mean, you have, you know, yes, you could get a copper IUD and again, end the conversation if you wanted to, although it has a side effects of its own. Um, But there's so much potential in not doing that (laughs) and actually being put in the position of having to talk about these things. Yeah, I would imagine that there's a, I just think about how there's such an overlay of religion with uh, education and that the fear of educating women on taking their temperature or checking their cervical fluid uh, is the fear that if they end up around that area of their body, they might touch it. Oh gosh, you know, they might actually get to know their body. And I know in, um, uh, I've had on here a few times, Dr. Alexandra Salman, who just wrote a book called uh, Taking Sexy Back. And it's written for women, uh, although as a man, I absolutely love the book and it taught me a lot about myself, but also the perspective of, of women in that she talks about this exercise of taking a mirror and like getting to know your, your genital area and mm. how in her classes when she taught that, um, and I hope I'm saying this right, but uh, in her experience when she's educated people on it and even their response to the, that part of the book that they've never done that. They don't even know what it looks like because they have shame around their labia majora or they're, you know, they're afraid that it's not pretty or doesn't look like a porn. and. Mm. Just how much fear there is about people being aroused. That is fucking weird to me because the very thing that creates us is sex. And we're so afraid of it, except all of us are the product of an orgasm. Yeah, I know. It's funny because one of the things with the documentary that's coming out this year, The Business of Birth Control, one of the things I always wanted to see was to have part of it be about so actual cervical um, wellness classes and cervical observation or self, self-care, it was called in the 70s, which is not only looking at your vulva, but looking at your cervix um, and 
you know, tracking the changes that happen with the cervix because the third fertility awareness sign is cervix and it changes position depending on where you are in your cycle to enable you to conceive or not conceive. Um, and so, you know, that was always a thing that I wanted to have as part of that project. And it was something I wrote about in my book and something I filmed early on, which is like women looking at their own and each other's <laughs> and not in a sexual context yeah. um, and not with an aim to talk about sex, which is not very rare um we're very comfortable with our bodies when it because in terms of porn and in terms of like pornographizing pornography i don't know how you'd say it the body in and how we relate you know we don't see people as being afraid in that way but that when it comes to like actually engaging with something like the cervix it becomes a different conversation which is interesting um but that i i this is probably opening a big kettle of fish for this point this this point in the conversation but it is true i do think that like evangelical christian wise yes it's definitely you know obviously puritanism obviously religion plays a part toxic movement absolutely sexual repression the lack of sex education it doesn't work by the way if you're an evangelical christian listening or you're someone who teaches abstinence and no sexual education Abstinence literally works, but as a collective education, it actually doesn't. I believe that the research shows that people have more STIs and more teen pregnancy in all states that teach abstinence. Abstinence. So, hey. Yes, but because then so, we connect shame to sex and 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 arousal, and whenever you do that, you want to be drunk for it. You you disconnect from yourself to be aroused, and you want to be connected to yourself. Yes. Definitely. I get real revved up about that one. Oh, yeah. And there's something that I always find really interesting is that, you know, if you pair that with knowledge of the body and you aren't adding shame in, then mm-hmm. you get the ancient Egyptians who would encourage teenage girls to have as much sex as they wanted because they knew that they weren't ovulating regularly. So it was unlikely they would get pregnant. That's like an opposite world. <laughs> I mean, that's like an inverted world. That- yeah. and the, And they knew that the young men had really high sex drives at that point. Um, and but wow. actually, the, just um, to yeah, evangelical Christian, all of that stuff. And you know, funnily enough, as a British person who just moved to the US when I wrote my book, I really was that was all quite news to me in a way. Um, <laughs> but what I did stumble across at the time, and I've ended up engaging with over the years in different ways, is that the fertility awareness method is a secular version of natural family planning and natural family planning <laughs> is connected to the catholic church and the ca- there is a section of the catholic church which would advocate for women checking their cervical fluid and that wow. often blows people's minds that right? shocks me as a recovering catholic i am shocked right. by that that reality and it's called the billings method and it's taught by predominantly catholic uh, teachers and cervical fluid checking only method is the Billings method. But there are other things like the Crichton method, and these are all um, using the same thing, like checking your t- checking your temperature, checking your cervical fluid. Um, and, uh, you know, the trajectory of that is we can assume essentially that women probably had some knowledge of their f- fertility cycles for many, many years, yeah. um, centuries. 
Um, and then <clears throat> eventually the science on it got more and more precise and they came to understand the concept of the fertile window and basal body temperature shifting, cervical fluid changes in, in like a research and science sense rather than a, in, a information passed organically between women sense. Um, and then the Catholic Church took it up and began to teach it. And uh, sort of the thing is with that, of course, is it's mired again in the culture of the church, which is often, mm. as you know, I'm sure better than I do, shame. Um, yeah, it's very sexually shame-based. Fearful, fearful not, of arousal. No sex before marriage, right? Yeah. No um, no sex outside of marriage. And so you're parceling something that seems quite radical in, in with, you know, uh, abs- what is essentially, unless you are married, abstinence-only education, right? Oh, you're, because you're not teaching people who aren't married to do any of these things, because why would they <laughs> not have sex? Yeah, you only get that education once you do the, uh, the <laughs> how-to-be-married educational class from a priest who's never been married. you got to appreciate the irony of that one. Yes, and then a- also, you know, you're not meant to use barrier methods, so the a uh, fertile window is prime only for abstinence or conception. Um, and so you're meant to actually avoid sexual contact during the fertile window. So unlike the fertility awareness method, which is secular, um, which encourages barrier method use and also other things in the, you know, that you do in the fertile window that like oral sex, whatever you want to do that isn't going to lead to pregnancy, that that is not a part of it, right? So <laughs> it's yeah. taken. It's taken the. Uh, it's not. It's taken information that is really just the science, uh, but was kind of co-opted by the Catholic Church and then taught back to Catholics as a way of avoiding them using hormonal birth control. And fertility awareness adds back in the you know the the, the fact that this isn't shameful that you can certainly do this outside of marriage, <laughs> and uh, that you know it's it can even be a great part of like just dating to know oh I have a date and I'm not going to get pregnant. Only thing I have to worry about is an STD. So yeah, it's it, I just you know, when you said that I it's a very complicated. Uh, it's a beautiful subject though, and if we don't yeah. talk about it, you know, it's important to have conversations that are that are about these things. You know, I I was laughing as you were saying like the Catholic education. I'm like, yeah, you know, even if they had taught the 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 fertility method of learning when you're in that zone, I never ever heard them ever say don't have sex before marriage, but go down on each other a lot. That was never a sentence right. at my any of my uh, education or lack thereof, right? <laughs> no, I, mean, I know. And that's the funny thing. And, you know, that is actually something I talk about in the, my workshops a lot is that, you know, we do, even as a society um, that's still perpetuating certain religious ideas and patriarchal ideas, um, I find p- people really struggle with, oh, so during the fertile window I abstain? And I'm like, you just abstain stain from that one yeah, kind yeah. of sex it's yeah you do a bunch of other deal, cool stuff surely pro- but it, it is a hugely big deal because of our education and the way that we're taught to understand that mm-hmm. and so like that is like one of the major like sticking points for people um because we thought that think that's the be all and end all partly because we're at service to what we think men want but maybe that's not what they want you know we're just assuming based on our the way that we've been educated and how we define sex as being heteronormative vagina. yeah mm-hmm. yeah which i know in early in my writing like years ago i remember writing about sex and <laughs> saying that and someone being like your definition is very heteronormative <laughs> and i'm like 
Amen. You're right. Actually, this is the beauty of feedback from some people. Yes. I don't like feedback from the trolls, but from other people that, you know, that you learn a lot when you incorporate different people's perspectives and are open to them, which I'm so grateful that you have taken the time to share so much information, which I'm sure for people listening, you know, that, that they're like, where do I find out more? Because if this at all, if you're listening, just stimulated a curiosity, is there something there? What are some other birth control options? I do want to reconnect back to my connection to my my fertility cycle, you know, whatever it is. Um, where can they find more of your work, more information from you? I know you said you had a course and um, I know your book is called Sweetening the Pill and you have this documentary coming out, which is called the business of birth control. The business of birth control. I can't wait. I can already tell that one's a, that's that's got some flavor to it. Um, so, where can people find more uh, from you? Pretty much everything is linked out from sweeteningthepill.com. Okay. Um, and I don't have an online course running at the moment, but I do, you know, do workshops online um, at times and basically like a feminist guide to going off the pill or just for women who want to work through why they struggle to go off the pill, even though they feel it might be the best option for them. But yeah, so everything's linked out from there, including all my social media. Perfect. Okay. So we'll make sure we put all that in the show notes. Holly, it is such a pleasure, such an honor, and I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Well, thanks for being open to talk about this. Of course.